Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, November 10th, 2010. You know, it just makes you wonder what William Tapley's going to do tomorrow. You know, it's 11-11 tomorrow. According to him, you know, that's... Well, 11 is like... A homosexual number, so don't know what that means. He did say that you know there could be some activity regarding the uh, tribulation, you know, by tomorrow. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which: help you to think biblically. Help you to think critically, to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, uh, one of the time-honored traditions that we have here at Fighting for the Faith is something that I lovingly refer to as Friday Light. And uh, since I've uh, bought into uh, postmodern nonsense, um, and, uh, well, words don't mean anything anymore, you know, I say things like, I'm an underweight fat guy. Um, but uh, that also means that I do silly things like have Friday Light on Wednesday, or the day of my choosing. In other words, the word Friday has absolutely no meaning in the phrase or the term Friday light edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, Most of the time, the Friday does well mean it's Friday light. Not today, though. I'm I'm exercising my uh, postmodern muscles here in order to make the word Friday mean absolutely nothing. So in, what we're doing is we're doing Friday Light on Wednesday, and you're sitting there going, why don't you just call it Wednesday Light? Well, because that would be too simple. And, um, yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't understand why anyone would want to do that. That being the case, today being Friday Light, and uh, I'm, you know, I recorded this program uh, long before it aired. I'm on my way, uh, well, actually... I've probably come back by now. Um, well, I <laughs> I uh, spent the uh, the morning with Dan Kimball of uh, you know one, uh, he's a pastor in Santa Cruz, one of the early leaders in the emerging church movement, and uh, and uh, I'm I'm sure I'm back by now. Although it's kind of weird talking about this event in the past tense, even though I haven't done it yet, but that's kind of the weird thing about recording things ahead of time. And, uh, I, you know, my intention was to spend time with Dan Kimball discussing Jesus, discussing theology, and of all the weird things we were going to do, we were going to um, um, pay our respects to James Dean. Yeah, um, I'll have to give you details after I've done it, even though by the time you hear this, I will have already done that. Anyway, <laughs> I'm confusing myself, and I'm just, I, I'm not ready to handle all of this weird, confusing stuff that I'm talking about. That being the case, uh, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, being a Friday light on a Wednesday, um, I've been warning you uh, for the last two episodes of Fighting for the Faith that you need to get a copy of this book. What we're going to be doing for uh, at least the next 10 weeks uh, is we're going to be doing a college-level look at a particular doctrine, and this is the understanding of the two natures in Christ, Christ's uh, divine nature and his human nature, the hypostatic union, if you would. And um, this college-level course will be taught on a college level by none other than Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn, and uh, you need 
to have a copy of the book. You, you really, if you're going to take this college level course with me on Friday light on Wednesday, even though next week it'll probably be on Friday, uh, then you really, really are going to benefit the most, not just from hearing the lectures, but by reading along, reading along. So this is a series that's going to take us all the way into and probably past the Christmas season on into the uh, new year. And uh, so that being the case, uh, you really, really, I, I, you know, I, I cannot stress this enough. It's a fantastic book, and you'll notice as you begin to read it, it wasn't written for a 21st century ADD media um, obsessed, entertainment obsessed audience. Uh, Martin Chemnitz wrote this work as a high-level theological work. This is done. This is a theological work done in the old-school way of doing it, and it's fantastic. It's marvelous. I mean, you will not believe the things that you're going to learn. So if you haven't already done so, you need to get a copy of the book. And here's how you do it. Are you ready? Go to fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see on the left-hand column of the uh, website, you will see a link. There's a little black book that talks about the works of Martin Chemnitz. Click on that. It'll take you to Amazon.com, and uh, my recommendation is that you get a Kindle version of this so that you don't have to wait. It's not, it's, it's uh, you know, the book is not easily obtained in hardcover, and uh, it's easy if you would uh, obtain a Kindle uh, edition and you're thinking, well, do I own a Kindle? You own a computer, you can read it in Kindle. And uh, today's uh, program will actually begin in chapter two. If you have the book, then you know that chapter one of uh, Martin Chemnitz's book, The Two Natures in Christ, really covers terminology. Now, don't let the fact that there's Greek in this throw you off. Just just don't. Don't let it. If you, if you want to uh, Google Greek alphabet so that you can at least learn the basics of how to pronounce uh, these Greek words, you could go ahead. You don't have to know Greek to know this. Although if you know Greek and, and uh, you know, then there's tidbits in here for you as well. Again, think of this as a college level course on this doctrine, the doctrine of the two natures in Christ. And this is the first time we've ever done something quite like this at Fighting for the Faith. So I really am hoping that uh, this will be of benefit to you. And again, this is not, um, this is not theologically uh, easy. Uh, this is this is more advanced. You're going to learn terms you've never heard before. You're going to hear of heretics that you may have never even heard of, and uh, and all the different Christological arguments as uh, against the doctrines, uh, the sound biblical doctrine, and then you're going to hear sound biblical doctrine marshaled to refute those heresies and errors. It's uh, it's just wonderful. Just you know, I uh, Martin Chemnitz is one of my theological heroes. So. Anyway, with that in mind, let's dive into the first lecture on the two natures in Christ. This will be covering chapter two of the book. Remember, chapter one is uh, is uh, terminology. It's kind of a glossary, uh, beginning uh, anyway. So here is uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. All right. Um... Welcome to all of you. We're going to tackle a book over the coming weeks. We're going to tackle um, Martin Chemnitz's The T- Two Natures in Christ, translated by J.A.O. Preuss uh, and his wife. Uh, she had a degree in classics from the University of Minnesota the same way he did, and if he got the flu, she just picked up where he'd left off. Um, We will not be covering every chapter I mentioned last week. It's not going to be like mayo on a ham sandwich, but we're going to cover the major ones. And maybe for the ones we don't cover in class, I'll just give you a handout um, for your edification here. Throw this in with everything else, but we're not going to cover it in class. But we will cover the major theses of the book. What you have um, in your hand is my outline that I did while I was back at Westmont of chapter 2 of The Two Natures in Christ, the divine nature in the incarnate Christ. Now, in case you're wondering, can I get a hold of these outlines? Probably not. 
Yeah, no, you're going to have to read the chapters. Sorry. Yeah, and it, by the way, there'll be a quiz at the end, and uh, and when we take the final, there will be no credit. I just want to let you know that. We continue. Christ. I'll make mention of other books. Um, but first of all, in the broadest sense, what we're going to do In the broadest sense, what we're going to do here is to ask the question that was asked by St. Anselm in his little book, Cordeus Homo, Why the God-Man? Or an earlier work that's also germane to what we're going to do, St. Athanasius, On the Incarnation, or On the Incarnation of the Word. Uh, A paperback, you want to buy the translation by uh, the Eastern Orthodox publishers, uh, St. Vladimir's Press, because uh, St. Louis, or St. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls that particular translation a galloping translation. It is unbelievably easy reading. Unbelievable. Compared to your intro to Soch textbook, this is crystal. Huh? The worst writing in America is for college textbooks, by a factor. Um, When I started to read in the humanities as a science major, I thought maybe I wasn't bright enough for college, and it never dawned on me that the problem might be the writing. That didn't dawn on me. It's the worst writing in the English-speaking world, college textbooks. Okay, So you'll find just the opposite if you pick up St. Athanasius's On the Incarnation of the Word. Um, It will be a weekend read, paperback. You'll say, my gosh, I can read this and understand it. Huh? Yeah. And a little more difficult with Cordeus Homo, but just so you know uh, about it. Those are the books that are in the background of the work we're looking at. Okay? Again, Uh, Chemnitz is a contemporary of Luther's. He was at Wittenberg, but he was in mathematics and astronomy while Luther was lecturing in theology. He was a science major. Luther dies, and Chemnitz, who then has become very interested in theology, goes scrambling to find every set of student notes that he can find from Luther's lectures. To try, that's the best he could do. There was no uh, DVD playback. Um, he is behind the Book of Concord. He is one of the men there who went running around getting different confessions from different little uh, fiefdoms in Germany and seeing if the problems that arose after Luther died could be ironed out so you could have something to which everybody could sign on. He and Andreas and a few others were behind the Book of Concord, at least compiling, editing, suggesting, and so forth. The Roman Catholic comment about Chemnitz is, had it not been for the second Martin, the first Martin had not survived. What did he mean? What did they mean? Well, after Luther's death, it was Chemnitz who did a lot of this kind of work. Luther himself had said, look, I'm just marking my way through the forest where the others can follow me and do the fine work. All I'm doing is marking the trees that need to be cut. Uh, He knew he was playing that function. And he looked to people like Melanchthon um, to pick up uh, the fine work after he was dead. All right, a couple of other bibliographic references. One you already own, the 41 edition of Luther's Smaller Catechism. I had not realized just how well they picked biblical passages, but they did. When I first compiled a set of passages for an intro to theology class at Westmont, I had 12 or 15 books that purported to do this all the way from okay to great. And the Luther's 41 edition of the small catechism was one of them. But it didn't stand out to me the way it should have. It's a great source for passages. 
And a lot of what we're going to be doing is passages. Now, another one, and this one I will um, scan in PDF, and I will pass out to you as a freebie the section on the Incarnation. 1920. Concordia Supply Company, Concordia Theological Seminary, Springfield, Illinois. A.L. Grebner and W.H.T. Dow, Dow is behind the Triglot edition of the Book of Concord, professor at St. Louis, and Louis Wessel, who was a professor at the Little Springfield Seminary. It is titled, The Proof Texts of the Catechism with a Practical Commentary. The commentary on each of the verses is maybe a page or two. But that's why I want to get it into your hands, at least the sections on the incarnation, on the deity, humanity, and the hypostatic union. So I will scan that in. I can't tell you when, but I will put it sort of at the top of the stack. And I think by uh, using just a section, maybe Concordia Publishing House won't sue me, but I never know. Um, but it'll just be the section on the second article of the creed. And I'll, uh, I'll PDF that for you and make it available both if you want to in, uh, in binary format, just bring a, a USB drive and printout format uh, for those of you who are interested. Okay, just want to let you all know, I will be able to pass this along to you. It is in the public domain, and I have a copy of it, so I will send that along with uh, the podcast. Uh, so if you uh, subscribe via iTunes, you'll see the uh, PDF uh, that he's referring to. I'll make that available so that you can uh, read it yourself. All right, let's continue. Uh, unique. Um I don't know if anybody renewed the contract on it, 1920. I don't know. Maybe they can't after that length of time. But anyway, feel free to take a look at this uh, at your leisure. Okay, let's go to it. The introduction. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communication of the attributes. That's sort of what we're going to do overall. Uh, But I probably should mention also the first chapter is the sort of thing uh, on which somebody like Dr. Brandt um, specializes, definitions. There's even a section in here where I'm going to refer you to him because of the scholastic uh, nature of the language. Uh, I didn't do it in detail because I'm not adequate to, but he is. All right, so it's impossible to discuss this correctly unless we say something of the natures themselves. We'll first describe and explain the true biblical teaching concerning the divine nature, uh, then later the human nature. Then after that, the, the hypostatic union. He links this immediately to our salvation. The old serpent knew and feared that his head was to be crushed underfoot by the power of the divine nature through the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium, the first announcement of the gospel after the first sin. So he traces that as to why and what's behind Genesis 3.15, which is, of course, said to the serpent, there's going to be a seed of woman who will crush your head. And in doing so, you will bruise his heel. Uh, Genesis 3.15. All right. We'll compile a brief summary and show how the prince of this world has, in a sense, drawn up three powerful battle lines in order to attack the divine nature of Christ. Um, God bless Chemnitz. It's a theme in Chemnitz's writings. He'll say, now here, I've got to use a little philosophy. You'll forgive me, but it's necessary I will use only as much as I need, and as soon as I've got that, I'll stop. Boy, professors would do that. Woo! All right. All right. The attacks. One, that the person of Christ did not exist before Mary. And he lists some of the famous names very quickly, and the replies. Two, that Christ is not of the same substance with the Father. And who did that? 
and what's lost if we deny that. And third, that the Father himself became incarnate, the patropassions. Those Chemnitz uh, takes as the, the three major attacks on the deity of Christ. By the way, you want to say it that way? Uh, I long ago learned through various sophists or seminary professors that the divinity of Jesus, which should be synonymous with the deity of Christ, isn't. It's sort of a uh, one illustration of the devolution of language. Um, you want to say the deity of Christ. What you're trying to get across is whatever it is to be God, Jesus was fully that. You start using the divinity of Jesus, and lo and behold, it's from the 19th century where guys wanted to say Jesus was the most divine man ever born of woman. Not the same. Okay, so the attacks on the deity of Christ. The correct doctrine is revealed and delivered to us in Scripture. Now, here I'm going to give you some homework. That is to just look up the passages or use your Bible CD to pull them up. Um, We're not going to go through each a particular one, but you'll see them there on paper, and they're worth taking a look at. Uh, what does he list first? John eight fifty eight, okay. and seventeen five. The high priestly prayer, the claim that he had glory with the Father before the world was. Um, that uh, uh, Paul using First Corinthians ten, Christ was the one who led the children of Israel through the wilderness, uh, Old Testament. Prophets, Psalms, Christ speaks uh, frequently before his assumption of the flesh. There are some Psalms that only can be understood if it's Christ who's the speaker, not we. And the clue is the righteous man or he who has clean hands. I know who's that's not. I'm sure of who it isn't. But they can only be read correctly as this is the pre-incarnate Christ speaking of himself. John the Baptist, he was before me. John the Evangelist, he existed from eternity. John 1, 1 and 14, writer of Hebrews, through whom he, got, uh, he formed the worlds through Christ. Hebrews 1, 2, Christ yesterday, today and forever, same. Hebrews 13, The revelation, Christ says, I'm the first and the last. Paul, all things were made through him, and he is before all things, Colossians 1. Anyway, do those just as you will. Uh, I've I've thought of taking a database. I haven't had the time to do it. But I've thought of taking a database and plucking out the content of each of passages like this and then arranging them not in biblical order but in order of clarity. You say, why in the world would you want to do that? Well, first, I'm a professor, but there's another reason. Um, if, you're, if you're making recordings on the White Horse Inn and you only get a chance to quote four, what are the best four? And I want to can them. Somebody might like to take that on. Hey, take Bento or I don't know what the PC equivalent is. Uh, Excel, I guess. Anyway. All right, going to pause right there to pay some bills. When we come back, we'll be list, uh, finishing out the uh, balance of this First lecture on Martin Chemnitz's book, The Two Natures in Christ, uh, taught by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. This is a college-level theological course on the subject. And if I hadn't mentioned it, and I know I haven't, one of the reasons I love Rosenblatt lectures, color commentary and side information that's worth its weight in gold. Oh, all right. Uh, so if uh, <laughs> we're up on our first break, if you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at, at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the octagon. It's called Rex Quan Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Christological heresies smited, smoted, destroyed, decimated, biblically refuted in these next series of programs. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, and partnering with us in order to continue to bring this type of radio uh, to you, this important discernment radio program. Uh, you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, donate. The other says, join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to uh, contribute, and uh, you can do so by make you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, the balance of uh, his first lecture on Martin Chemnitz's The Two Natures in Christ, uh, beginning with chapter 2. Two, Christ uh, Scripture clearly testifies that the second nature in Christ is the actual, true, and eternal divine essence, not another, some heavenly substance, nature, or power. 
and then the passages. He is the true God, Jesus, 1 John 5. All things which the Father has are mine, John 16. All things which the Father does, the Son does likewise, John 5. I and the Father are one. He who sees me sees also my Father, uh, John 14. In Christ dwells the whole fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2.9. Then scripture passages show that only the Son assumed to himself flesh, not the Trinity. Gabriel's announcement, um, the word which became flesh is with God, that is the only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, John 1. God sent forth his Son, made of a woman under law, Galatians 4. The Son of Man is the Son of the living God, Hebrews 9. Christ offered himself to the Father through the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 9. The Son of God in the assumed flesh stands on the bank of the Jordan. The Holy Spirit descends in bodily form upon him, and from above the voice of the Father is heard, saying, This is my Son, my well-beloved Son. Listen to him. Okay, again he departs. What Satan seeks in this kind of disputation, this is worth keeping in mind, that he might craftily steal away from us the divine nature of the Logos in the hypostatic union of Christ our Savior. If and when we lose this, Christ can no longer be our Savior. There's the backbone of this book. He's going to say the same thing in the humanity, and then he's going to say it of the hypostatic union. So the rationale of attack behind all this is to ruin the gospel, somehow evacuated of what it's about, whom it's about, and what it does. So Chemnitz sees himself in true spiritual warfare, you know, not our evangelical counterfeit, but the real thing. So contrast this. Suppose the attack of Satan were on Christians' lousy morality. You know what Chemnitz would respond? And he'd have every right to respond. Every religion has some degree of morality to some sense drawn from natural law, and Chemnitz is not going to get sidetracked on that. Huh? Um, those of you who've had an intro to logic, you know, have been forced to think through that even the most despicable human being can have a thought or an argument that's valid, a thought that's genuine and an argument that's valid. Um, Hitler loved dogs and babies. You can always analyze something ad hominem about the awfulness of the character of the speaker, but any intro to logic prof worth his salt is going to say, all right, but let's get back to the argument that he raises. And, and he works like crazy to get the kids from an Oprah generation back on the argument rather than the character of the person arguing. Uh, here, Chemnitz the same thing. He is not going to be drawn away from that the gospel is on the line when the attack is whether Jesus was God or whether Jesus was fully man or whether uh, the natures were walled off from one another. And he's going to fight it page after page after page. The gospel's at stake. The controversialists try to tear this comfort from us by denying that the divine nature and the person of the Son is united with his assumed human nature. Again, Colossians 2.9. The church has always said that the divine nature of the Logos became incarnate. Quotes the church fathers. I didn't include them, but I gave you the page number. Um, the two natures, the divine and the human, have been united. The same person of Christ consists of two natures, the divine and the human, united with each other. You can do this little paragraph on what the opponent said. It's not the divine nature of the Son, but only his person has been united, been united with the human nature. Again, that's scholastic. Um, all right, I'm going to drop down to the bottom third of that page. But by these characteristic properties or different personal qualities, the essential attributes even of the deity are accommodated and applied to the individual persons by the mode of existence. Here I'm going to again refer you to Dale. <clears throat> um, and then these bottom three on page three are straight quotations from the text. 
This God, insofar as he's simply God with reference to his absolute and common essence, is not incarnate. But only insofar as he is God, the begotten, does he differ from the God who begets and the God who proceeds. He's doing Trinitarian stuff. He does not differ indeed in essence, but in person and in reality. Jesus is fully God. The Father is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. But only one of them became incarnate and died for us. Okay? Thus, therefore, the divine nature, although it is common in essence to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, nevertheless is united with the human nature in the person of the Son alone without any incarnation of the Father or any any incarnation of the Holy Ghost. Or, therefore, the Son, although he's not alone, for the Father and the Holy Spirit are in him, is alone the Son. For neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit assumed flesh and became man. Um. He's, he's, if it weren't living representatives of this, he could see up in front that there were going to be people who didn't know Trinitarian stuff very well. All he's trying to establish is they are all God, but only the one of them became incarnate and died. Okay? Pretty familiar to Trinitarian thinkers and Christians. However, we should not dispute idly concerning the divine nature in Christ, but we ought also to think about the use of this doctrine. This, he says, I'll deal with later um, in uh, the chapter on the personal union. So he puts it off. Finally, a few reasons why the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, became man. He said, I'll follow Athanasius on the incarnation. So this is just lifted and transferred from St. Athanasius' on the incarnation. To restore, to redeem, to be the Redeemer to rescue sinners from death and to restore to us life in order that we might receive adoption as sons, daughters, to restore us to his image in order that we might receive grace for grace that being loved and received we may be brought back to God the Beloved. This one I had forgotten from Athanasius. The Son is the middle person of the Trinity, therefore it was proper for him to be a mediator. That one I'd have to think about. But In order that the Son might show us the Father, reveal knowledge of him to us. Okay. Now, I think this will give you the sort of tone that he's going to use, and it's typical of Chemnitz. He is not interested in philosophical discussion for its own sake. But he is very much interested in discussion of a doctrine using the passages such that you and I have confidence in the message that's being preached from that pulpit, that it's actually true. And that this, to put it in language of those of us who are closer to death, this is actually going to work. What's actually going to work? What's actually going to work is a gospel of imputed or reckoned righteousness plus zero. That is, we will go to judgment with just Christ's robe of righteousness and nothing else. Almost every other group in Christianity disagrees, to some extent or another, certainly Rome. But the historic Lutheran position is the person and the work of Christ will be all we've got. We will not have our sanctification. We'll have forgotten about that in an instant. But we will have been robed, reckoned with the righteousness of Christ, the only wedding garment that really is going to work at the judgment, and will be seen as if sinless 24-7 as if actively having lived according to the law our whole lives long. Why? Because Christ's righteousness will be reckoned to us as if it were ours. So the comfort aspect of this, first the truth, but then the comfort, and no philosopher would bother much with this. It's sort of a foreign category. But Chemnitz does, and he'll do it again and again and again. That is that we can face our death with just this, just the person, just the cross, just the blood, 
and nothing of us except for our sin. That's what we bring to the deal, and the Father brings the Son, and it's going to work. Okay? Every pastor deals with this in the hospital prior to death. Um, it, it just is part of the calling. Um, I hope that other groups, I grew up in the ALC, and I hope other groups have done this better than we did. Uh, years and years ago, a sociologist took a survey of Lutherans. I think I mentioned it before, uh, Mert Stroman, a study of generations. And he, he uh, took this survey of zillions of Lutherans of all synods. And he asked questions like, were you to die tonight, would you go to heaven? Answer came back, hope so. If you were to get in, how would you get in? Well, I served as president of three congregations. My wife and I always sang in the choir. And we taught Sunday school for 22 years in various congregations. Perfect Roman answers. Perfect Roman Catholic answers. Now, if we're not getting that across in Lutheran parishes... I don't have a lot of confidence that a Wesleyan parish or even a Reformed one is going to do it better. But that's the situation. Now, Luther would say, well, what else did you expect? You're going with what is not intuitive as a pastor, with what is counterintuitive and preaching it into a flock of sheep who were born with Adam's theology. Good people get into heaven and bad people will go to hell. And you're having to confront it every single Sunday to say, no, no. And the New Testament's on my side, and today I'm going to take this paragraph and try and prove that Adamic theology wrong. Um, some of you are familiar with the 1953 black and white movie, Martin Luther, was made for public consumption for Edwards theaters, not for churches. Uh, there were no Hollywood people on set. They weren't allowed, except for the technicians. And behind the cameras were guys like Bainton and Spitz and uh, who was that at Ohio State um, before Kittleson? Ah. I'll remember later. Anyway, it was the Reformation historians who were standing behind the cameras. The high point of that movie, they said afterwards, was not Luther's confession at Worms. High as that was, the high point of that movie was more subtle. It was when, when Luther turned away from adoring all the new um, trinkets that the prince had bought, uh, his own Roman Catholic prince, Frederick, had come back with more um, pieces of Mary's veil and other such, and Luther was just sort of looking away and trying to be ignored, and afterwards, I think it was Staupitz who came to him and said, but Luther, if you take these things away from the people, what are you going to put in their place? Christ, Father, I'll put Christ in their place. That was the high point of the movie. Okay. All right, uh, let's open it up for questions. Uh, Jim has asked me to announce if you'd be so kind as to use a movable mic um, in asking them if there are any, then that way it goes on to the, not tape, but onto the chip. <laughs> I'm way back to eight track. <laughs> and most of my guys are. I swear I'll bet Sproul and I'll bet Horton see their machine as an electronic typewriter. <laughs> yeah. I have an easy question. Uh, the first line of your handout. Hypostasis. Oh, please, yes. Please explain I, that. It, all of that. Maybe I should do that from the first chapter. <clears throat> the, the language of person. Let me, let me type it out so it's accurate. I'll do it from chapter one, definitions, and pass it out to you next time. Um, rather than me just doing that off the cuff, I'll, I'll do some of the original language, and I'll pass it out to you next time. As a uh, lecturer at your sister institution, Concordia in St. Paul, I'm taking notes on your style. Thank oh. you. I'm learning from it. Um, 
If, if I may express a concern that is an affirmation, uh -huh. uh, you made reference to the message that we hear from this pulpit, and it was very grateful for the preaching this morning. Amen. And I'm very grateful for Missouri's lifelong commitment to doctrine. Amen. It strikes me that there is a challenge when we leave that at the level of message, that we're only talking about information. I've got the right information uh -huh. instead of those who have the other kinds of information. Uh -huh. When, in fact, as we saw... Are this you in ed? Are you in education or uh, theology? Uh, uh, yes. Both? Both. Okay. <laughs> Just thought I'd ask. And sometime I'll ask why you asked. Are we going to affective domain? Uh, just barely. Bloom does that. And I do think we are whole persons. The Psalms take us to the affective domain. <clears throat> So I have scriptural grounds for going there. Um, but what I'm after is that we do lock up that gospel in... Rosenblatt looks, <laughs> looks like he's just going to crawl out of his skin. Uh, those of us who know Dr. Rosenblatt know that, uh, that he's had a probably lifelong running battle with the folks in the ed department. So, yeah. The cognitive domain, and therefore we think of approaching heaven as people who have the right answers, everybody else has the wrong answer. When, in fact, in the reverse, that those right answers have me, that Lord and Savior has me. Uh, it is a whole person reality. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more than a message. It is the word become flesh that has me, not just the words. Okay. Um couple of things. Um, in general, I would say the book itself is going to correct any sort of uh, information-only static thing. The book itself will do that. It's passionate. Two, I, I'm, I came from another synod where the same arguments were used, so I'm probably not the best one to ask because I get immediately angry. I watched a synod go down the drain uh, on these arguments that the information wasn't really the central thing as much as something else that was more affective. Um, so I'm, I'm probably not going to be the strongest one, but the book itself will pick up for my weaknesses on it being that. Uh, thirdly, I find us in a time of almost complete biblical illiteracy. I'm teaching passages, stuff that in a prior generation, kids got by the time they were through the sixth grade, and it isn't there anymore. So it's sort of rehabilitation um, in the worst of ways. But you can't build on it till the basics are done. Uh, you don't want to, get, want to get me in a conversation about the government schools, I'd fire all of them. Um, and most of the ones in the Lutheran schools, because I've discovered by being at one of our universities that they bought onto the government school system and they added prayer. So I'd fire them too. So you don't want to go to that one with me. But here I'm going to, I'll make room as we go through for the passionate defense of this as other than just information. But the emphasis will definitely be on the syllable cognitive information. Other thing worth considering, and this is Missouri only, the other thing worth considering is um, what Alice Miller writes in her book, For Your Own Good. Uh, a lot of that has to do with how the German family rears particularly sons. I don't know about daughters, but sons. And part of what we don't pick up, we I get to say this, I'm 25% German. Part of what we don't pick up is the art of conversation with those who aren't like us. And Alice, Alice Miller dismembers it. Um, very quickly, when I first came to Christ College, <clears throat> one of the things I noticed was that there was no philia between the men, no Doc and Wyatt. Um, philia is one of the four Greek words for love. We translate brotherly love, Philadelphia. Philia. Okay, the Doc and Wyatt, that's uh, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp. Think of the movie Tombstone. That's what he's referring to here. 
is non-homosexualized love between those of the same sex, the French camaraderie. And I noticed the lack of it. What I did notice in my fellow men faculty members was that they were sort of like a Masonic order. They had the similar worldview, and they did what we call the children uh, parallel play. They played next to one another, but not with each other. Now, I came out of a world of Animal House at the University of Washington, and those guys, those guys were totally pagan, but given a little bit of the grace of God, they would have taken a bullet for me. That's what I didn't see in Missouri. So um, there's a whole other thing going on in the family, and Alice Miller will do your analysis of it. And the problem isn't really in the old parochial system as much as it's earlier and it's set in stone before they're six. Alice Miller, for your own good, she also wrote one on the gifted child. She comes over to lecture every year from uh, Switzerland, lectures at UCLA. After the lecture, the medical school invites her to become head of the Department of Psychiatry. She thanks him for the offer. Then the university comes and offers her the head of the Department of Psychology. She thanks him for the offer and flies back to Switzerland. But her, her expertise is what happens very early in the German family. And that one I won't tackle, but I think it's key. Okay, there was another one over here. I just wondered, when uh, Chemnitz wrote this book, uh, what his contemporaries, uh, did they have a reaction to it? You know, I'd have to check on that myself. He was already looked to with great respect by most of the Lutherans, and even the ones that were fighting amongst one another in what finally was ironed out in what is called the Formula of Concord. But they were grateful for scholarly help. And if you'd asked Chemnitz, he would have said, oh goodness, I'm not doing anything original. I'm just doing the passages, and I'm doing the theology of Luther through the passages. He would have made no claim to being creative. I always like guys like that. I'm drawn to guys who say and talk that sort of way. But the very acceptance of the Book of Concord, especially the formula, says, yes, thanks. Okay, uh, here's a strictly philosophical question. Oh, dear. You, I know you love those. Oh, dear. <laughs> you said that only the second person of the Trinity was incarnate. Um, I'm curious how that works, be because... <laughs> well, if I've got five minutes... Yeah, yeah, right, right. It shouldn't take longer than that. Well, well here's the thing. We, we confess, uh, when we say the Athanasian Creed, Ath uh, the Athanasian Creed that, right, God, that the Son has all the attributes that God has. So, for example, they're both all-powerful. Right. Right, they're both omniscient. Right. So now the difficulty is seeing how two omniscient beings could have different mental states. And, and, and therefore, how could, how could it be a different person that's incarnate? Right, because what is a person other than a collection oh, okay. of mental states? All right, well, then let me pass out next... I'll, I'll, ju I'll just wait for your answer. You got about Yeah, if you don't... Uh, <laughs> let, me, let me pass out next time... If you'll remember the question, let me pass out next time the first chapter of the definitions of hypostasis and usia and how he's going to use the words. And it could be that something of it will just pass away from seeing how he's going to use the words. I don't know that. But let, let me put that off at least till next week. I was not going to do that chapter. I've decided I'd better. Okay. Well, <clears throat> I was going to come in on Jeanette's dad's comment, but now Dale brought something else up. So... Uh, you know, the uh, Watchman Knee and the whole uh, uh, local church local movement, church. Uh, the CRI just had a big article. Or their whole magazine basically was saying, we were wrong about them. They were really preaching the Trinity. And part of the problem was that the way he spoke was, uh, we can't separate the rest of the Trinity from, in fact, they're so interrelated that you can't separate them in one sense. Where one is, there the other two are also. So he's saying that the, that the Western church is almost tritheist when they're speaking, and he wants to, to argue against that. That, that was why long, he was interpreted as being uh, anti-Trinitarian. Long, long history. Uh, and I'll, I'll try to remain convincible on it. Um, but with Witness Lee and Watchman Nee, uh, 
I'm going to say the burden of proof is on you, given what you've published. Talk to me. And I'm going to turn loose people like Walter Martin and Hukama and others on them. Spiritual Counterfeits Project in Berkeley, with all their fury and all their quotations. So in principle, the answer is yes. But what you've published leads me to believe your answer is no. I'm very suspicious. The reason that Spiritual Counterfeits Project in Berkeley almost went out of business was because of lawsuits from the local church. It was lawyers' fees that buried them. So I'm on the I'm on color me skeptical. Okay. Uh, Pastor, I got a question on. Colossians 2, verse 9, where it says, In Christ, uh-huh. the whole fullness uh-huh. of the Godhead bodily. Uh-huh. What uh, When people deny um, that Christ has all the power of God, being, being omnipresent and all that, does this verse not uh, take that apart? And how do those, yes, the I other... Think it- I denominations it, deal with uh, yeah, I think it does. in the Lord's Supper that no Christ is local, he's stuck in heaven at the right hand of God the Father and yeah, can't be by down the com- here. By the common grace of God, um, this is in many cases not a conversation filled with a bunch of heat between denominations. Will Mike and I differ? Yes. Um, but there'll be a lot of ways in which what we're doing is primarily for the outsider to Christianity more than it is for denominational debate. Now, does that mean that the denominational debate is somehow not of any worth? No, it doesn't. But um, there are ways in which most Christians I know, regardless of label, will respect Colossians 2.9, And it's just then a matter of what Dale was bringing up, where you're talking about what the creeds say we are saying and what we're not saying. And thank God for that. Um, Let me give you the other side of that, Missouri, where it doesn't get an A. I've been invited to speak to Missouri-centered Lutheran groups, and as a convert, there are thousands of things I didn't get or understand. But a group of pastors would ask me to come up to City X and speak to them on subject Y. And I'd do something like that. And uh, then everything fell silent afterwards. I didn't even get a check for the gas in my tank. So I went to a Missourian to say, can you tell me what's going on here? And one who's now president of one of our colleges said, sure, I can tell you. I said, what is it? He said, in their mind, you didn't fulfill what they asked you to do. I said, really? He said, yeah. What they were looking for you to to do was to list their 14 errors. And you didn't. You didn't list their 14 errors. Well, Lutheran theology is like a rock thrown into a lake. Center, ripple, 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 ripple. It's not like Calvinism or even Roman Catholicism where you begin at the beginning and end at the end. You start with the incarnate Christ and then work outwards through the passages. Well, that's what I'd done. And Luther doesn't fit well into that Procrustean bed, what are their 14 errors? There are books by evangelicals like Walter Martin where if you want to do that, you can. Uh, Lutherans are appreciative. I'm appreciative of people who tackle Mormonism and the JWs and things like that. I appreciate it because I don't want to do it. But it isn't our style. It wasn't Luther's style. He would go to the incarnate Christ and argue outwards from him in various ways, even ways where it was pretty oblique, but he'd go there anyway. Is it creedally conditioned? You bet. Just as Dale brought up. Are there problem passages? You bet. We'll deal with them in here. Um, 
If it has to do with his omniscience, you've got a problem passage like, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the Son, but only the Father. We'll have to tackle those. They're problem passages. But we will. At the outset, though, um, we're going to defend what is most on the line, as Chemnitz does it, the deity of Christ. And then we'll go to what sounds uh, not quite as important, maybe even boring, the true humanity of Christ. Luther would disagree with us when we said, when we say it's kind of a given or boring, but it was the doctrine on which the gospel was almost lost in the earliest years. The Gnostics would grant the deity of Christ just like that. And you start talking about born, placenta, blood, breast. Plato doesn't have room for that stuff. The Gnostics didn't either. So the gospel is almost buried. You can see it in 1 John. If anybody comes to you and says, Jesus Christ didn't come in the flesh, have nothing to do with him. The attack was already going. So we'll, we'll do some on both. And then the hypostatic union. Right? All right. Well, thanks for your attention then. Okay, that was uh, lecture number one. You'll notice that Rosenblatt spent some time in the text and then spent a lot of time, uh, you know, working out questions and other things. That's kind of the flow of the way he does things. Again, if you want to follow along, visit fightingforthefaith.com. You will see a link uh, that there to be able to purchase a copy of Martin Chemnitz's book, The Two Natures in Christ. I think it's the finest book done on this topic in all of Christendom. You know, that's uh, just my personal opinion. So anyway, uh, that there you have it. Now, if you would uh, like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you know my email address. It's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>